Great to see you. Appreciate you being here this morning. It is to our God all praise and glory. We appreciate if you take your Bibles and find the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. You're going to be reading verses 1 through 12 here in just a moment. But uh, we appreciate you being here today. We're in the midst of this uh, series of messages on uh, you Got Questions. Well, He is the answer. We know that uh, the Lord has answered all of our questions. We've talked about things like heaven and hell and why suffering, absolute truth. Uh, uh, a few weeks ago, Brother Dick talked about uh, uh, family, marriage, and divorce. And uh, next, uh, next week's October 31st, and uh, make, uh, uh, make Sunday October 31st today that you sure want to be here. We're going to talk about how Jesus triumphs over evil. And uh, there's going to be something on countercultural Christianity after that. And uh, so you want to be a part. Last week we talked about uh, the Holy Spirit. Dick mentioned that early in the service. We talked about how the Holy Spirit is at work, about Pentecost. And I kind of wondered about how that was going to land. But I thought it landed actually pretty well, pretty exciting about uh, the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and how we know the Holy Spirit is still at work in our world today. We know that even today, Holy Spirit... We'll continue to be at work in this service today. Quite a contrast in topics that we're hitting at today. As we talk about a very serious subject and when we know that the Lord's going to uh, continue to uh, help us to be able to understand what God's Word says, how we might make application, how we might be a help to others, and how this might be a help to many, maybe who are present or even listening today, who have considered perhaps even giving away one of God's most precious gifts and maybe even those who have had loss in their life. And if you're a guest today, you, you might need to know that uh, this idea of these topics are a little bit off base of what is our usual menu because probably 90% of the time we're going to be from this pulpit looking at uh, books and chapters and verses and letting God's Word speak uh, to what we believe. God's Word will continue to speak uh, to each and every one of us as to uh, what it is that we need for that day as He does to every congregation of people. But we're looking at these topics today and even today we're focusing primarily on one passage and letting His Word speak to us about this subject, knowing that Jesus is the answer. The very first verse, 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1 says this, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament and these names, you may not know much about them, but you know Ahab and Jezebel are not the best of people. As a matter of fact, Ahab, Jezebel, king and queen of Israel, Ahab a descendant of King David, but it was wicked and she was even more wicked and probably was more of the boss at that time and we know that uh, here Ahab comes and tells Jezebel what Elijah had done Elijah being the prophet of God a man of God strong person of faith and he had taken care of and had killed many of the false prophets and many of the evil uh, prophets of the false gods says with the sword and so now with that introduction we will read first Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Would you stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word today? Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. May the Lord bless the reading of His holy word, and you may be seated. There have been occasions in my ministry in which I have surveyed the congregation and asked, what topics do you want to know? What topics would you like to hear preached about or know more about? And almost without fail, the idea of suicide and or the unforgivable sin has made the top ten list. One time it was one congregation or one survey, it was the second one time when I did the surveys and surveyed adults and youth, when I had surveyed all the adults and counted them, hadn't quite made, this subject had not quite made the top ten list until I was able to receive that list back and those surveys back from our teenagers. And then it definitely made the top ten list. I don't know that I have to convince you the need maybe for us to even talk about or to address this subject from a biblical perspective, nor am I going to give you many uh, statistics. I am going to give you at least one interesting statistic in, uh, about suicide in the United States in the year 2020, in the year of the pandemic and economic stress, isolation, and much less than stellar news, well, whereby predictions were made of a rise in suicides, the actual rate went down in 2020 by 5%. I've checked that in two or three places just to see if what I was reading was correct. However, there was a dramatic increase in approximating those who had considered ending their own life this past year. It's been estimated that approximately 10% of adult Americans have considered ending their own life in 2020. Not to mention, one in five college students every year consider suicide. Now, meaning that uh, obviously most have not gone through with it, but meaning that those who are here today, if we have 400 perhaps that are in our services today or that are combined with those who are listening online, that at least statistically speaking, many have considered suicide as a way out. And it's likely most of us know someone who has considered, know someone who has attempted or have lost someone. So we want to be 
looking biblically at what God's Word says. We want to offer hope and encouragement for all those who are here and all those who are listening or all those whom you may have contact, if not today, then sometime in the future. The only handful of suicides that are mentioned in the Bible, one in the Old Testament, we know that the first king of Israel, King Saul, after the Spirit of God had left him, he found himself, he and his armor bearer were surrounded by the enemy. And he and his armor bearer both chose to end their own life. In the New Testament, the most infamous suicide of the Bible would be Judas who portrayed Jesus, who hung himself in his grief over turning Jesus over to be crucified for 30 pieces of silver. All are examples of, particularly in the Bible, not just these, but others of people who were in despair and chose to remain in a state of despair and hopelessness rather than place their confidence in a living God. Today... We know that many people who choose to end their life have come to a place where they may no longer be in full control emotionally or mentally. And today we want to answer questions about God's forgiveness and God's grace and also offer a sense of hope to those who may be in despair and, again, be very biblical in all that we say today. So instead of focusing on someone in the Bible who has succeeded in this tragic endeavor. We're going to focus on Elijah, clearly a man of God who was in despair so much so that he desired to end his own life and focus on what led to his turnaround. Now, you've got questions there, or you've got notes there, and we've got, we want to be sure to answer maybe that first question that we've been talking about. And It has been my uh, desire to let you know that this particular week was coming. If there, you know someone's been dealing with this so that you might be able to hear what God's Word said so that you might even have a heart that is prepared. But if you've got your notes, the very first blank is this. It is suicide is not the unforgivable sin. In a moment, we're going to define what the unforgivable sin is. But we also want to provide this morning alternative the alternative, give encouragement, hope, and biblical answers. Now, 1 Kings chapter 19 obviously is a low and difficult time for Elijah. 1 Kings 18, if you've got your Bibles open or your smartphone, you just slide maybe to the chapter before that. But it's about a true mountaintop experience. I'd much rather be preaching on 1 Kings 18 to 19 today to tell you the real honest truth. But 1 Kings chapter 18... It is a showdown that takes place on Mount Carmel, much more dramatic than Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday at uh, the OK Corral in Tombstone. One lone prophet, Elijah, stands against at least 450 prophets, if not, if not 850 prophets, of the false gods of Baal. Each build an altar and call on their god to bring down fire to burn the, the sacrifice. All day the false prophets call upon their God, most of the day, from early morning till midday. They dance around, they even cut on themselves and call for their gods to answer, but to no avail. There was no answer. Then it was Elijah's turn. He prepares the sacrifice. He pours gallons and gallons over the sacrifice that he has made. In fact, he repeats this process three times. And then let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 18, verses 36 to 39, and see what happens. At that, and at that time, verse 36, And at that time of the offering of the 
oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. I'm pretty sure that this is where the term mountaintop experience comes from. It doesn't get any better than this for the prophet of God. Then how does Elijah go from such a mountaintop experience to sleeping under a broom tree or a juniper tree, more like a bush in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a desert, feeding alone, and so much depression that he wants to die. Well, first, these, these episodes in Elijah's life reminds us that mountaintop experiences are often followed by valleys of despair. It's what often happens in the Christian life. Probably every teenager or student or even adult who's gone, on a camp, gone off to camp or gone on a mission trip or come back from a great revival service on fire, ready to set the world ablaze has sometimes, maybe sooner or later, find themselves maybe in a drought spiritually soon after a low period, maybe after they've realized that not everyone's on fire as they. And there are many Christians who are always looking for that mountaintop experience, that next mountaintop experience. Some of them travel from church to church in order that they might be able to experience more of an emotional or spiritual high. And they're under the false impression that this is what the Christian journey is all about. But here's the downside of seeking a mountaintop experience time after time, or you think that that is what you're after. The higher your experience or the higher your emotions run, chances are your next valley will be even lower and the tougher time of depression will come. But there's something else about these experiences with Elijah that it teaches. It can happen to anyone. If it can happen to Elijah, the prophet of God, depression can happen to anyone. For Elijah, here Jezebel, the queen, had vowed to kill him. He'd proven his God is God. And then the people of Israel had made made little difference as far as he could tell, in spite of what they said on that particular day. To be a prophet or to be a preacher and feel like you had made little or no influence i got to tell you, I've known what that feels like at times. And he was lonely. God, it's just me. I'm the only prophet left. And there's a bounty on my head. Well, if you weren't depressed before you came in, maybe we've led you to one now, not our case. But in a crowd such as this and those watching live stream, chances are that someone here is battling depression. May even be somebody here who's recently considered taking their own life. Maybe even today the thought has crossed someone's mind. Mental illness and depression is much more common than we could ever imagine. Simone Biles, the Olympic champion, so much in the news and open about her struggles this year. She said, when I'm depressed, I sleep as much as I can because sleep is the closest thing to death that I can find. If you can relate at all, the Lord wants to tell you something today. The Lord, this, what does the Lord, what does the Bible have to say? You are not alone. You are not alone. 
First, God sees you, knows where you are going. He knows what you're doing. He knows what you're going through. God saw Elijah, sent two angels, or sent one angel twice to minister to him, and God himself came to give reassurance. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, which is what we're studying on Wednesday night in one of our groups, Jesus proves to us we are not alone. We have a great high priest who has gone before us. He is tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet without sin. He can sympathize and he knows what we're going through. There's nothing that you have experienced. There's nothing that you have felt. There's nothing that you have thought that the Lord Jesus has not already thought and has not already gone through, but we know that he is without sin. How much does he love and care about us? Well, he left the throne room of heaven in order to come and die on us from this cross. And his resurrection lets us know that he conquered death. Death is one of our enemies. Jesus has won the victory. Don't let the enemy win the battle or win a battle. Then, then there are others. Real followers of Jesus, chances are, who have gone through what you're going through. People who care about you. Elijah felt that he was all alone. The only one holding the truth. The only one who was trying to do the right thing. The only one not bowing down to idols. But in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 18, it said that God reassured Elijah that there were 7,000 others in Israel. 7,000 others who had not bowed down to a false idol. 7,000 of God's people. Now, a problem or problem of depression may have nothing to do with holding on to truth. But chances are, feeling alone or isolated or wondering if anyone else understands may be the case. Well, you need to know that God is with you and there are believers who care. Also, what else does the Lord, what does the Bible say? Life is precious. Scripture is very clear about the sanctity of life. Life is a gift and it hurts the heart of God to decide to end any life, especially our own. But it is not the unforgivable sin, though that thought has kept probably some people from doing such. Suicide itself is often the act of surrender, of overwhelming depression. Suicide, like any other sin, is not in character with Christianity. But Christians can get depressed. And if you still have freedom to choose... Choose life. However, suicide often represents a final and absolute act of unbelief for those who are without Christ, a surrendered hopelessness in contrast and opposition to confidence of the living God. What, what do you tell someone who is suffering greatly? Maybe even an elderly person who's even a believer but says, I don't know why I'm here and I wish the Lord would take me. First, it's good for them to know and good for us to know that if that's the way we're feeling or someone else is feeling, you're in good company. Not only is Elijah, but Moses and Jeremiah and Job all felt the same way on different occasions. Even the Apostle Paul wrestled with which would be better. Second, tell them to be sure to let God know. I mean, He knows anyway. He knows how you're feeling. He knows what your thoughts are. But we need to have that conversation with God. We need to have that prayer time so that not only can we let God know how we feel, but that He might be able to communicate with our heart and we can feel His presence and know that peace that surpasses all understanding. Some of you might be familiar with Billy Graham's last book, or one of his last books, called Nearing Home. He let it be known that his greatest desire of his heart 
certainly at that time in life, was to be able to go home and to be in heaven. But he says his faith is still in God. He writes, Most comforting is the knowledge that He will not forsake me during this last stretch of my life as I am nearing home. You need to know that the Lord will not forsake you, whether it's the last stretch of your life or it is a difficult stretch of your life. The Lord will be there. Often the desire to depart is because a person is so uncomfortable or in such pain that the desire to be free from pain has become all-consuming. And while it's easy to talk of our desire to trust God while all is going well, we know of many whose faith has been revealed because of how they have faced difficult times. And if we're we're talking about, whether we're talking about suicide or euthanasia or abortion or life from conception to the grave, God is the author of life. And the timing of the ending of this life should be in His hands and not our own. What else is the Lord wanting to tell us today? It is that we are to wait on the Lord. Hang in there. Don't do anything now. Do what you have to do to make it through the next day, the next hour, or the next moment. Sometimes trusting God means just waiting. Psychiatrists who have studied people who have made serious attempts to take their own lives but failed in the process. According to psychiatrists, 90% said that they would not have attempted it if they had waited only 24 hours. We don't know what the last thought that goes through a person's mind who takes their own life But so often it's an overwhelming but momentary feeling of depression. And just as quick as Elijah went from the mountaintop to the valley, from elation to depression, how you feel, chances are, will not be how you feel tomorrow, the next week, or a year from now. Feelings do not last, and the Bible tells us that they are often deceptive. With with these truths in mind, that you're not alone. Life is precious. Wait on the Lord. Let's let's look at the story of Elijah just a little bit closer. In spite of Elijah being a true prophet of God, when Queen Jezebel did not resign, or when she was not overthrown, there was not a revival in Israel that he could tell. Jezebel put a contract out on Elijah's head, and Elijah's running scared. He fled from Judah to Beersheba, which would have been the very southernmost part of the land of Judah, He left his servant and went a day's journey by himself into the desert without food or water. Why did he do this thing? Why did he go to be in the desert? Most Bible students don't believe that Elijah was going there to necessarily to take his own life because of a sacred regard for life, but it appears Elijah was either trying to commit suicide by desert or he was putting God to the test, and this is the kind of test the Bible says that we should never do. And Elijah goes, he sits down under a broom tree, which is little more than a bush. And he prayed that God would take his life. He'd had enough, and he went from a bad place to a worse place emotionally. It's even presented, represented physically. If you've got your Bibles, you might notice in verse 4, first he goes, he's sitting under the broom tree or the juniper tree, and then he lies down under the juniper tree. Let me ask you. What, what kind of person are you in that when something's really bothering you, are you the kind of person who has a hard time sleeping? Or are you the kind of person that has a hard time getting up and all you want to do is sleep? Well, Elijah is the latter. He fell asleep in verse 5. He lay down to die. Maybe not to take his own life, but praying that God would. But an angel woke him up. 
And the angel said, get up and eat. And there at his head, so I'm sure that he would notice it, the angel had left a cake of hot bread and water. Now, but what's better than homemade bread? Well, maybe angel food cake, but whatever it was, he left it there. What did he do after he laid? What did he do after he ate? He laid back down. You ever been depressed? Does that sound familiar? Lay down only to get up and eat and lay down again. And the angel woke him up again. Or aren't you glad that God does not give up on us? Then the angel says, get up and eat. You're not done. You'll not be able to face the journey in the state that you're in. You need, among other things, nourishment. Notice verse 8. Again, 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 8 says, And he rose and ate and drank and went the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Surely you have heard sometime in the past that uh, help for depression is proper diet and exercise. Well, it sure helped Elijah, but it was not enough. Elijah traveled to Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, the very place in which Moses had received the Ten Commandments and God had appeared before him. It is considered the mountain of God. The Lord spoke to Elijah and said, What are you doing here in verse 9? What are you doing here? Boy, that must have seemed like a strange question maybe for Elijah. If he didn't say it, maybe he thought, what do you mean, what am I doing here? Isn't it obvious I'm looking for some answers? I've lost the will to live. In verse 10, he says, I've been in the past very zealous for God, for the Lord Almighty. But the rest of the Israelites, they've rejected your truth. They've broken down the altars. Of, they've broken down your altars. Your prophets have been put to death. Now it's only me. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Elijah didn't ask, now, Lord, what do I, he didn't ask, what are you doing? Or do you have any answers for me? Sometimes when we are down, sometimes when we're in a low state, all we can do is to tell God how we feel. Let's commend Elijah for this. He did spend time talking with God. He was honest with God, and those are the very things that we need to be honest about as well. But the Lord asked him what has become for life's most basic question. What are you doing here? Then, Elijah, then God told Elijah to go stand on the mountain. The Lord's about to pass. Now, you would think this would mean something very dramatic would happen, and something very dramatic did happen. There was a great and mighty wind that tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks, but the Lord was not in the wind. How did Elijah know that the Lord was not in the wind? I'm not positive how he knew he was not in the wind. We, we don't always know when things happen in our life. Is this God speaking to us? Is there something that you're trying to tell me, God? But we're waiting, we're listening for what God has to say. Then the scripture says, After the wind there was a powerful earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Then after the fire there was, what the King James says, a still, small voice, only a whisper. And it was the voice of God. The Bible says that Elijah covered his face with his cloak, and the voice of God whispered the same question as before. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said again, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your truth. They've torn down your altars, killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left, and I'm all alone, and now they're trying to kill me too. Only this time, Elijah's ready to listen. And God told Elijah, keep doing what you're doing. Gave him a specific task, go and anoint 
two kings and anoint Elisha as his successor as the prophet of God. And it reminds him of the 7,000 who have remained faithful. What's the meaning of the wind and the earthquake and the fire and the still small voice or the whisper? Well, there have been a lot of answers given to that question, but here's an application. Sometimes when we are at our lowest point, we expect or we think we'll only trust God if He does something dramatic or immediate or earth-shattering. But the whisper of God reminds us that God is always at work, even when we do not realize it, or even when something dramatic or immediate or earth-shattering is not taking place. Whether God shouts at us His will or He whisper it, we need to be obedient and faithful even to the least significant or request of God as if there could be a least significant, insignificant request. Can I tell you this? To take one's life normally represents a self and inward looking act, understanding that many are not in the right state of mind. And we need to realize that this is Elijah's, not Elijah's finest hour. In this season of life, he had taken his eyes off of God and he had put it on himself. Now, depression and being prideful are at the opposite ends of the spectrum, but both put too much emphasis on self. And for a time, almost like the prophet Jonah, it had become all about him. And one key of battling depression is to live to please God and to serve others. Remember, you're not alone. Life is precious and how important it is to wait on God. Whatever your life situation, whatever tough times you may be going through, it's only temporary. There's no promise that our circumstances or situations will change. We can pray that they will. But mostly we need to pray that God will see us through and trust that He's always working on our behalf and working out His purposes and we are to be faithful and obedient. Even if there's no change in this outward circumstances, even if there's no change in this life, there is a greater life in which to come. How very short our life here is compared to eternity. So wait on the Lord because we're promising. Prophet Isaiah told us, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Okay, so maybe it's not you, but you know someone battling depression who may have considered taking their own life. What do you do? Life is a precious gift. You take it seriously. You let them know of God's love for them. Use these truths that we've talked about as a guide and give reason to wait. It's okay to make a person promise they will not go through with harming themselves unless they have talked with you or with someone else. It's okay to write up a contract and have them sign it if you need to. And if they'll not promise or if you know someone has a plan and even... A method, you want to be sure to point to them to talk to somebody professionally. 911 will even respond to immediate needs. I tell teenagers as well as adults who may be wondering about what to do, when someone tells you something in confidence concerning these things, what should you do? Anytime someone is about to harm themselves or someone else, do not hesitate. Let it be known. Whether it's a parent, a teacher, a preacher, youth pastor, let someone know. Serious subjects we've talked about, and, there's, and these are some of the principles, but let's talk just a moment about why it's not, uh, why it is forgivable. You notice, got another truth, your sins are not unforgivable sins. In your notes, your sins are not for unforgivable sins if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. We tend to categorize sin. We know all sin separates us from a holy God without the blood of Jesus and the forgiveness of sin, but there are 
There are some sins that some think are unforgivable, and people have a hard time sometimes forgiving themselves, or maybe sometimes church culture has a hard time overlooking. But here are some ones already listed for you. Murder is one of those things. We know that one who murders is not one who is unforgivable. Uh, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Dick, two or three weeks ago, talked about marriage and divorce. There's no doubt, Scripture tells us God hates divorce, but all how God wants to give grace, how He wants to give forgiveness. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. You remember the woman that was brought in adultery to Jesus, and Jesus said, let the one who's without sin cast the first stones, and they all walked away. And then Jesus said, though, Jesus said, now, nor do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. But you know, the second greatest tragedy of abortion is the emotional issues and the feelings of guilt that comes often with abortion. But God is the God of grace, and also He offers forgiveness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about many of these things, and He let, us, uh, let it be known that uh, sin begins in the heart. We're just as guilty in our thought life or that which we harbor in our heart as we are for some of these things we might consider the worst or open sins. The difference is being repentant. Jesus is able to forgive. Are we making light of sin? God forbid. It took the sending of the Son of God to come from heaven and to be able to live amongst us and die on a sinner's cross in order that sins might be forgiven. I talk to some people who think that they're just too far gone. Just done, they've had too many bad things, done too many bad things, then Jesus is not going to be able to forgive them. Well, I'll ask them sometimes, have you, have you made it your life's work to incarcerate or kill Christians? Well, that was the Apostle Paul. Or I may ask, have you slept with another man's wife and then had him killed? Now understand, you don't want to ask too many questions, but that was King David. God is able to forgive. Some say it makes a difference if these sins were committed before or after someone became a Christian. It does make a difference, but not for the reason that most people think. These are not characteristic of a Christian lifestyle. Are Christians capable of making these kinds of choices, including suicide? We are. While these and all sins are not characteristic of a Christian lifestyle, the blood of Jesus covers all sins of every born-again believer, even a believer who has committed suicide. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All sins are forgiven of born-again believer, even those we've not committed yet, past, present, and future. I believe that. Not because it seems right, just as we talked about the Holy Spirit at work. Not, we may not always seem exactly right, but we know it's right because it's what the Bible tells us. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Murder, divorce, adultery, abortion, these are not unforgivable sins, nor are sins that you forgot to confess. All sins are covered. Do we need to list our sins, confess those, all that we can remember? Certainly before the Lord Jesus, yes, we are to do that very thing. And maybe we need to say that prayer that covers those. Lord's those that I cannot remember now, I want to confess those. Not so that we can be able to make it to heaven, but so that we might be able to be in a right fellowship with Him. However, true, confidence, true repentance and confession are necessary. 
We should confess our sins. We certainly should. But if you forget, and you're a born-again believer, you're still forgiven. You may still be asking, then, why should I continue to pray? Why should I continue to keep myself from sinning and confess my sins daily? Well, hang on for just a couple of more minutes because I want you to be able to see this. But there's a third truth you have in there in your notes. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. Matthew chapter 12, they bring Jesus, a man who is demon-possessed, he is blind, and he is mute. It is a triple threat. Jesus drives out the demon. He heals the man, and he can now see, and he can now talk. The demon is gone. The people are amazed. The Pharisees claim these things happened by Beelzebub, by Satan. And Jesus says, it's not by Satan, but by the Spirit of God. And he gives this warning to those who reject the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12, 31 and 32. I think it's going to be on your screen. It says, And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven man, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus had more in mind here than using profane words or cursing the Holy Spirit. Speaking against the Holy Spirit represented what was in the heart. Now, why could they blaspheme or speak against Jesus and be forgiven, but not the Holy Spirit? Because rejecting the Holy Spirit represented the final rejection. Now, remember, Jesus is talking to these Pharisees and to these the Israelites, and they had rejected the prophets, John the Baptist being the last. They were rejecting Jesus while He was here on this earth. The healing evidence of the Holy Spirit at work, Jesus said, at Pentecost. Talked about it last week. The Holy Spirit would be poured out on all believers and begin knocking on hearts' doors. Jesus' work is completed here on earth. The Holy Spirit continues to knock. John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9 says, When He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He'll expose the error of godless world's view of sin, righteousness and judgment. He'll show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin. So it is Jesus saying, you've rejected the prophets. You've rejected me. And if you continue to reject the knocking of the Holy Spirit's on your heart's door until the day that you die, it will be the unforgivable sin. But a genuine believer cannot commit the unpardonable sin. Boy, I hope this has not confused you, but instead maybe helped you to understand why life is precious and why life is secure in the hands of our Savior and Lord. God's most precious gift is life in Christ. It's living with Jesus. You got another minute. September 25th, 2000, Kevin Hines stood on the Golden Gate Bridge looking down below at the water, 220 feet below, contemplating jumping. Ever since the Golden Gate Bridge was built in 1937, 1,700 people have jumped off their bridge, off that bridge to their demise. Kevin thought to himself on that day he was going to the Golden Gate Bridge, and he kind of made a deal with himself, if not with God, if anybody uh, asked him how he was doing, that he would not jump. As he rode the bus to the Golden Gate Bridge, in spite of sitting there in tears, all the people just pointed and stared rather than asking how he was doing or coming to see if they could help him in any way. 
When he got off the bus, he stood on the bridge for a while. Many people did approach Kevin, but only to take his pic- only to have him take their picture as they were tourists walking across the bridge. And so he decided. He took a, run- took a running leap and jumped over the bridge, head first into the water. This 19-year-old kid fighting mental illness, trauma of his parents' recent divorce. 1,700 people before him had succeeded in taking their own life by jumping off the bridge prior to him. 25 of those had not died in the jump, though they had attempted. Kevin miraculously became the 26th. And now he spends his days telling his story, offering hope to countless people who are depressed and are battling mental illness. Ours is to offer hope for this life and for the life to come for the countless people in the world today who, if not thinking about taking their own life, the countless people in the world who are on their way to destruction because they need to know Jesus and they need just somebody to tell them and to show the love of Jesus. Two conclusions I want to leave with you. The first one is this. No one is so far gone that cannot be touched by grace. No one is so far gone that they cannot be touched by grace. And the second one, you who are completely saved are to let others know of complete satisfaction and salvation found in Jesus. I encourage you to follow Jesus today. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want to follow Jesus I cannot promise you you'll never be lonely or you'll never be depressed. But I can promise you there's hope in Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for a time in which we can come and we can be honest with you and honest with ourselves. We pray, Father, that because of what your word says, the presence of the Holy Spirit today, that you've offered hope to those who are gathered here and encouragement to those who may be listening live stream. Father, we pray if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that today might be the day of salvation, that they may call upon you. They, they know that they can repent of their sin, ask Christ to be Savior and Lord, and that you will fulfill that promise and that you will forever be with them and give them that most precious gift, life with our eternal Savior. Thank you, Father, for your help, hope and help every day. It's in Jesus' name we lift these prayers. Amen.